Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Well, ladies, it's good to be back with you again today. Um, We had a very large portion of passages to read, chapters 2 through 10 of 2 Samuel, so we had quite the trek to make. We are fully into the reign of David, and I would like to narrow it down to two particular chapters, and that is 7 and 9. This is where David is asking to build the temple. He is seeking uh, through Nathan to build the temple. And then this is also with the covenant that God makes with David, and then David's interaction with Mephibosheth. Amy pointed out beautifully for us in last week's lesson the juxtapositioning of Saul and David, how they countered each other, and that how arrogance has to die, especially before God can reign, and that humility is the key. And we're going to see nicely here that humility plays a part in David. As I read through chapters 6 and 7, I saw that same humility of him coming out. It was with great joy and celebration um, with the people, before the people, that David brings the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem, and he sets it inside his tent, the tent that he had pitched for it. Now, something that you can do is always ask the text questions. Never be afraid to ask the text questions. And so these were a couple of questions I had for that little part. When it said he set it inside the tent, he pitched for it, Does that mean that he built another one? He made another one? Was it a bigger one? Don't know. Can't answer those. But it's always good to ask questions of the text. It helps us to dig deeper. Well, some time has passed, and then he approaches Nathan with a desire to build a permanent dwelling place for the ark. Not just this tent dwelling anymore. And it was here that I was struck with this humility It was compared, and especially compared, to the world around him. But you might say, Rebecca, how would we know what the world around him is like? I'm glad you asked, because I have a little nugget of history to share with you that might help you just a little bit. So kings in the ancient Near East, especially those that were recently appointed, as well as those that had been appointed for a while, it was very common for them to build a a temple for their deity or to add on to an existing one. And it was almost always expected of them to do this. Hatshepsut, who was one of the few female pharaohs of Egypt, is a pretty good example of this. She wasn't supposed to reign. In fact, the throne really belonged to her stepson, who was also her nephew, and that's a whole story in and of itself. But she was able to strong-arm her way to the top to get to the throne, and once she was there, she had to solidify her right to rule her as a divine or sovereign ruler. She is the female Pharaoh that you will see many statues of where she is the female with the actual beard. She really worked hard to prove herself as a Pharaoh. Well, one of the things that she did is that she built a huge temple to Amun, who was the chief god of the Egyptians. And she built this at the base of a pyramid that was facing his other grand and even larger temple, several acres large, just across the Nile. So where she positions it, by the Nile, across from the other one, that is all super significant. And this temple, she builds it so that it is about him, and it is for a moon, 
But it also, inside, she has these reliefs that tell the story of her and her greatness and how she is a divine descendant of a moon, how she is like a goddess. Well, with this new temple, she does then gain the support of the priest, who then in turn tell of her magnificence, her greatness to the god and to the people. The priests are happy. The gods are happy. And if the gods are happy, then the people are going to be happy, and it's much easier for her to stay in power. The temple is for the gods, but really, it's about her. Well, not only did the building of a temple strengthen a king's divine right as ruler to the people, but it also had this idea of forcing the God to bless you. Building a temple forced the God to bless them because the king would build this grand and glorious temple for the God. And because it is so grand and it's such a magnificent edifice, the God then owed the king blessing and riches and power. Now, in the next few verses, verses 4 through 16 of chapter 7, we are introduced to the Davidic covenant. Now, before we dive into that, the specifics of the covenant, let's back up just a little bit and look at what a covenant is and then a few of the others that lead up to David's precious covenant. Also, throughout the ancient Near East in history, people would use formal agreements or covenants to gain power. They would set up obligations between two parties, usually kings, but it wasn't always. The covenants could range from personal to legal, simple to very complex, and sometimes the kings were equal, and sometimes they were imposed by a superior to another, the suzerain and the vassal kings. Rules were laid out to keep the relationship very happy. It came with oaths. Sometimes they were written down on an obelisk. There would be a sacrifice of blood of life and death consequences. There would be blessings and curses. And of course, all of these had no negotiating part, especially if it was with a vassal. He had no negotiations. Now, it's very interesting because covenants are found all throughout the ancient Near East. It was a very common way for people to make covenants and agreements amongst themselves. We see God using that very same concept with the people to reveal himself to them. Each covenant revealing just a little bit more, opening the curtain just a little bit further for the people to see who this God is, this God of amazing grace, this God who was coming down to make reconciliation with people between a holy God and a very sinful humanity. There are, very, there are four specific ones that I would like to discuss, and there are many more throughout the Old Testament. You could have an entire semester's worth of study just on covenants alone, but we're going to talk about four, and the four that come into play to our lesson. The first is the Edemic covenant. This one was between God, the suzerain, and Adam, the vassal, because God came and intervened just after Adam committed the sins that he and Eve did. And before they were kicked out of the garden, they were given hope. They were given hope of a seed of, of his own body, of his own blood, that would crush the serpent's head, bringing about the hope of the reversal of sin, the Edemic covenant. 
The second is the Abrahamic covenant. And this is one where Abraham, so now the focus has gone from very broad with all of humanity, and now it is very focused between one group of people. And Abraham would have a son miraculously. He would have this very large family, and they would inherit the promised land, which would be Canaan. And because this large family, they would bring universal blessing to all of humanity through the, through the world. This, of course, is all after the fiasco of Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael, God intervening again, the Abrahamic covenant. The third one is another important one, and it is the Mosaic covenant. This is the one of the lamb and the law. The lamb is provided first through the Passover, if you remember, where they put the blood on the doorpost and the death angel came through and wiped out the firstborn among the Egyptians. The second part of, of the Mosaic covenant is the covenant of the law. And this was given through Moses to the people at Mount Sinai. Interestingly, just barely, they got this law right before they sinned with the golden calf. Again, God intervening, a divine initiative, and he gives them the sacrificial system, pointing ahead that there's more to come. So just looking at these three covenants, we see displayed a very unique relationship of God reaching down to an undeserving humanity, giving not according to their merits, but rather according to his abundant grace and mercy. I mean, Adam sinned, Abraham sinned, the people of Israel sinned, but yet God still came and made covenant with them. God initiating it all, coming to intervene, to intercede, to interact with those who were far, far from deserving it or even desiring it, much less. Now, we can look at the fourth covenant, the Davidic covenant, which brings us to our lesson today. Here the Lord sets up again who is suzerain and who is vassal. And he says, in a nutshell, it is my power that establishes you and you will be my debtor. And that really turns the world's idea of the God giving back to the, vas back to the king who built him the temple. It really turns that on its head. The, in, in the world standard, it was the king who had the God in his control. The God was indebted to the king. But here, God is like, mm -mm, I will not be indebted to you. You will forever be indebted to me. And then God goes on and he says, I will establish you, David, my prince, over my people. He doesn't call him the suzerain because God's the suzerain. David is the vassal. So with that established... He explains the terms of the covenant. And he says, I'm making a new dynasty, not like the old one with Saul, but instead I'm making a new one with you, David, my servant. You will have a descendant, a seed, whose kingdom and throne will be forever. And my love, my steadfast love will be on him forever, and it will not be taken away. David, the shepherd king, the Lord's vassal is stunned. This is not at all what he was seeking. <laughs> was he anticipating building specs, much like Moses got from Mount Sinai? 
And instead of building specs, what he got was grace and blessing beyond measure. Rather than building a house, he became the founding father to a house. This son that comes from Adam and then finally through Abraham and now has the lineage of royalty in him would come through David. All of this is laid out for David. Not according to what he's done. Not according to David's merit. Because we know the sins that he is about to commit. But rather, God establishes this with him out of his great mercy. The Lord, the suzerain, has been giving and giving through each of these, co- these covenants, ultimately giving of himself. Adam's seed that would have victory over Satan. Abraham's seed that would be a blessing to the nations and of the world. Moses' lamb and law, the seed who would redeem a people and restore a holy relationship with God. And then David's seed, the one who would have an everlasting throne whose love would last forever. And this side of the cross, ladies, we know that that one, that seed, is Jesus. Now, David's response to this overwhelming, undeserving covenant is very simple yet profound. And it shows even more of his humility, where he is unlike the rest of the world, like Hatshepsut, who writes the walls of the temple and makes it all about her. David, no, very humble in this situation. And I don't want us to miss it. Our study did point it out, and I would like to linger on it just, just a little bit more. Chapter 7, verse 18 It says that David went in and sat before the Lord. He sat, very simply. He didn't dance. He didn't lay prostrate. But he sat. I love that. His prayer of response as he goes through shows that he's not only sitting, but he's also wondering and he's pondering and he's knowing and he's adoring God. And I think this is a beautiful example of what we should be doing, how our response should be in relation to our salvation through grace. Yours and my salvation, it doesn't start by doing. We don't do for God so that he will save us. It's not about us. No. That's coming to salvation like the world does. Do for the God so that he'll do for you. Rather, it is sitting before the Lord in absolute awe of what he's done for you and me And then knowing, and then doing. And doing how? Out of gratitude. So what gratitude did David show? We get to see in the very next couple of chapters. In chapter 8, we see him go out with confidence as he conquers in chapter 8. But then in chapter 9, we see him with this overflowing, outflowing of gratitude with his interaction with Mephibosheth. That overwhelming knowing led him to recall the covenant that he had made with Jonathan. Isn't that interesting? God made a covenant with David. And then here, David recalls the covenant, the very simple covenant that he'd made with his dear friend, Jonathan. So he asks, who's left in Saul's house that I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Not for my sake, but for Jonathan's sake. So it's just like God reaching down into humanity 
to bring reconciliation. David seeks out this son of his enemy's son, the grandson of the man who chased him down like a dog, like a flea, to kill him. This young man, though, had two strikes against him that I could see. He was a direct descendant of Saul. That means he's a political threat. We've already seen it with Ishbosheth, but now we have Mephibosheth. He is a direct descendant, direct descendant of Saul. That's political. Then he's also, interestingly, crippled in both feet. Both feet. He's one that's to be just cast off. He should be thrown out. He's an undesirable. And as foolhardy as this seems, I'm sure that David's men thought this was foolish of him to do it, but he did the unimaginable. He has Mephibosheth brought into his presence, brought to him. I just kind of had this scene playing out in my mind, feeling the fear that Mephibosheth had coming into the presence of David. Can you imagine David's men coming to his home across the Jordan River? All the, I mean, he's making a trek. He's making a purpose. It is it's a very planned out thing to do to go get Mephibosheth bring him all the way back across. And here he's commanded, there is no choice, there is no negotiating, he's commanded to appear before this new king, on this new king's territory, in this new king's palace. It surely can't go well. So they escort him into the throne room, where he then pitifully makes his way to the front to where David is sitting on his throne. I can imagine his crutches striking the ground, mocking him as he goes. He knows death could be very near. It could easily be administered here. I mean, no one's going to question David's actions. David's done it before. And then David speaks to Mephibosheth, and he says, Do not fear. I will show you kindness because of the covenant that I made with your father, Jonathan. Not because of Mephibosheth, but because of his father, Jonathan. Kindness? How? By not killing him? That would be kindness enough in and of itself. But David's not done. The remainder of verse 7, he says, Do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of, your, of Saul, your father. He gives him an inheritance. Something he wasn't even asking for. And then there's still more. Look what he says at the end of verse 7. And you will eat at my table always. As a spectacle? To be mocked? As the court jester? No. Look at verse 11. It tells us what. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Like one of the king's sons. What is that? That, my dear friends, is a man after God's own heart. And you know what I find so beautiful about this whole scene is that this is me. This is you. We are Mephibosheth. We're the child of the enemy. We're deserving death. We're the cripple, the undesirable. We're the Gentile. Yet, we are invited to the table of the king 
as though we are his son and daughter. To eat of the bread and of the wine, not once, but for all eternity. Oh, what grace has been lavished upon us. Let us sit, sisters, at the feet of Jesus, wondering, pondering, being in awe and adoring. And then, may we have that same response of David, because we know that we are Mephibosheth. Pray with me. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he can be his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.